Are you looking to transition, transform, and evolve in every dimension of your business and life? If you said yes, then welcome to the Alchemy of Business Show, a podcast that mixes practical, actionable business solutions with soulful insights for anyone seeking deeper meaning in their lives and greater success in their work. We'll be featuring purpose-driven leaders from all walks of life and getting insight into their journeys from failure to triumphs. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the host of the Alchemy of Business show, Steve Rogers. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in or viewing in. However you got here, you might be on YouTube, maybe you're on iTunes, maybe you're on Roku, I'm not sure, but I'm just glad that you are here. We have an amazing show for you today. I am so thrilled to have our guest that I'm going to introduce to you in just a moment, but I've known this gentleman in business and now personal for six or seven years now, and just astonished at what he's done in his life and what he does in his business and in his continued journey of himself. But on the show, as many of you that have listened in know that we talk about this show, Alchemy of Business, helping businesses become more productive, more profitable, more on purpose. We also are focused on our guests sharing ideas that can help us all make wiser decisions, help create greater profits in our life and businesses, and also my hot button is creating higher purpose and meaning in life. And the gentleman that we have on the show today, Mr. Paul Morris, he embodies all of this. He is an entrepreneur, investor, author, consultant. Paul is really a prolific entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is not only is he in real estate, but he's a serial entrepreneur in various businesses where people ask him for his advice, ask him for his investments. And he's gone from having a law career that we're going to talk about when he got his law degree from Cornell University to then go from law into real estate. And he learned how to take these skills of his discipline being first an academic person who wasn't really academic, but used academia to get to where he needed to go. And then he used this to build his own business in an unexpected way in real estate in Los Angeles. He ended up connecting with a franchise called Keller Williams, and he and his team have become one of the largest franchises in the country for Keller Williams. He also has a company that has multiple offices. They've got about 15 offices. They have numerous transactions, 10,000 plus transactions are doing a year. Um, And as a CEO of this company, his ranking throughout multiple ranking lists in the real estate industry on a national level always puts him in the top 50 or 100 as an individual, as one of the most influential people in real estate. But his company is also ranked continually in number one in transactions in Los Angeles and various times in the top 20 or 30 companies in the country. So Paul today is going to come and share with us how he became this glorious, successful entrepreneur and what we can learn from Paul on building our lives and business in a better way. So Welcome, Mr. Paul Morris. Hey, Steve. Thanks. I love the intro. Hey, you're welcome. Well, isn't it funny when someone intros you or you read your bio and you go, God, I really have done all that. And you're like, shit, you sometimes wonder what you've done with your life. And then you go, gosh, I guess I have done all that. <laughs> I used to hate to, uh, whenever I was interviewed, I used to hate to sit through the bio because we're like, ah, oh, you know, I just want to get in there and share some stuff. And they're reading about all this great stuff I've done. And what if I don't do as well as, as the bio says, but you did a great job. So I, I don't, I don't mind coming after that bio at all. <laughs> well, I've always had great admiration for you and what you do because you and I have very similar, but also very different paths. I've mentioned before on the show and to people that I'm a guy that barely graduated high school. I moved out when I was 17 and I tried to get a three years of college and it just did not fit for me. And I never finished college. You, on the other hand, went on to not only be, you know, get through school, but you also went to Cornell University and became a, an attorney. I mean, that's a, a whole path in itself. And you and I have shared about some of the obstacles and challenges in that for yourself. But can you talk 
talk about how growing up as a young man, I think you're from the Pittsburgh area, uh, which is where my dad was from. But how from growing up from Pittsburgh, did you end up getting on this path to getting into a in the first place, wanting to become an attorney? Let's start there. And then I'm going to revert back to your childhood after that. So, you know, I grew up in a I, my, my dad never went to college. My mom was sort of an academic, which at their age and I'm and it's almost two generations. Right. Because uh, I was the youngest by far. My dad grew up during the Great Depression, rode his bicycle, lived in a tent camp and rode his bicycle to high school. So one of the things that he brought to me, you know, of course, hard work, you know, these sorts of things, but there were things that was very fear-based. And so I was trying to figure out what's the best way to insulate myself from a catastrophic event, like being poor or being homeless or whatever. How do you do that? And I really felt like I knew, well, if you become a doctor or you become a lawyer or you have some skill that or degree or something they can't take away from you, that you always have that. And that really was coming from, believe it or not, a lack of abundance. You know, it was a protective measure to make Make sure that you know my rock bottom would never be too low and that's where the idea came from I did have you know four older siblings three of them were doctors so very much the same way but they were better academics than me for sure and typical with entrepreneurial people is the inability to sit still you can see it in people and you know school rewards the people that can sit still among other things right so you want to school is going to reward somebody who's smart somebody who can recall information for a test right and can sit still long enough to read the text and all that sort of thing. And I did not have, I had some of the other pieces, but I did not have the sit still thing. And it's very really difficult. You, you had enough, well, you and I have talked about this before, you had enough of the other pieces that allowed you to outweigh that piece that seems so important of what you just said. I mean, you gain information pretty quickly and you process quickly. So how did you learn maneuvering through when you're in these classrooms of having to get these credits and learn these topics where other people were studying and they were, you know, academics and you weren't necessary, but you still ended up getting a law degree. How did you learn to adjust what what your strengths and challenges were within that academic environment to still get the end result that you wanted? Well, I did not do a very good job of it. You know, I stayed in it because I was scared to death. I didn't have another path. You know, sales is obviously a great path, but I never knew a salesperson growing up that was that was successful enough to actually want to, this is something I want to aspire to. So one of the things that was a great life lesson for me was the difference of the way things were structured. And this is the way school was structured for me in different programs. And it created a very different outcome. At the end of the day, I made sure I got straight A's, whatever it was, but the pain level was so much different. And one, and, and to contrast that was, I did a master's degree at Oxford University. And the way that was structured was, I had one major assignment every week and I had to present it orally. And so therefore there's no getting around it. There was no, you know, hiding or whatever. And I was forced. And so what happened was, you know, day or two before the test is when I would have the crisis. I would do nothing. You know, I'd play basketball or fool around or do whatever. And then like, oh my gosh, I have 48 hours until I have to give this oral presentation. That was a small nightmare. And this happened 50 times because there were 50 of those presentations. Wow. And then when it came time for the exam, I was so prepared. I'd never been so prepared. I just read through my notes, the oral presentation. I had to, you know, I had to read what I had. I had to write it down and present it orally. I just read through my 50 packs of notes one time, went in and aced the exam. Law school was done very, very differently. And there was absolutely no intermediate steps. Take courses and had the final exam, period. There's no midterm exam. There's no grades on participation. So go to school or don't go to school. They don't care. 
Right, uh, right. <laughs> so I got five classes and then a final exam. And so it was an absolute nightmare. Law school was a nightmare. Now, Oxford was not a nightmare. And what I learned looking back was that success for someone, especially like me, and I share this with lots and lots of people, lots of people that weren't particularly good in school, for example, uh, you know, how do you create success outside of that in, in work is that many, you know, the giant project is never going to work for me. I need to have, if I have the giant project, it's got to be broken down into those 50 little steps. And then I have to have a little exam, you know, at each of the 50 points. So for example, Steve, I know you do coaching and are very, very good at it. I was never more productive. At one point in time, I looked back and I had four separate coaches that I was accountable to at the same time. I was never more productive than that period of time. So it has nothing to do with how much is on your plate. For me, it has nothing to do with the workload. Like, give me very little work, and I promise you, I can be very unproductive with that very small amount of work. You're one of those guys that acts well on pressure. And I've seen you do it numerous times where you don't think you're going to be able to do it and you'll grab it, you'll get reconnected and you'll direct. And it sounds like from a young age, whether it was fear or understanding how to break these things down into chunks is the steps you just mentioned. When did you realize, because it seemed like you somehow use fear as your fuel and then you realize that you had to have a different system to excel than maybe some others had. So did that become a secret sauce for you at some point, combining those two things? Well, at some point I realized that, you know, and I know you love to talk about mindset. And one of the things that I had to do was stop beating myself up for not being like somebody else. So someone is always going to be more organized than me. You, Steve, you do a lot of things very, very well that I struggle with. So creating, you know, once you get to a certain point, I can't function without a phenomenal executive assistant. So I have that. But what do you say? Well, I can't afford an executive assistant. How, how are we going to do that? There are systems that you can put into place. The definition of a system, my definition is just a checklist, right? So here's the 14 things that need to get done. And I can have that checklist to guide me. You know, instead of beating myself up for being disorganized, which I did plenty of times, I would pay the cable bill when they turned the cable off, you know, and it didn't matter whether I had money or not. Sometimes I didn't pay the cable bill because I didn't have money for the cable bill. So a lot of times I didn't pay the cable bill. I had plenty of money for the cable bill, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't paying attention. So little system, one of my systems, again, that I carry forward to this day is I don't, I don't write any checks. As soon as I start writing checks, it creates a total mess. So that there's a centralized bill payment situation. So Steve, if you rendered services for me, you're like, hey, you know, I need to be paid on the day of, or if somebody's gonna run out to my house because I, I broke the garage door last night. And if somebody's gonna run out to my house, you know, well, we need to be paid on the spot. Uh, I have to have a way other than me paying them, right? Because it just messes up my finances. So right, I have right. a hard and fast rule, which is, okay, well, I don't write checks. I don't pay bills, right? And that sounds like, sounds fancier than it is, but the idea behind it is that I know what things mess me up and I've created little systems to prevent that. Yeah. Well, you've learned to, you've learned to delegate. You clearly, and I've observed, you know what your strengths are and you're good about letting go of what you're not good at or what you don't love doing. You might be good at it. And of also unpacking how something's supposed to work. And then like you just said, I've, I've noticed these systems are in place. So for any entrepreneur listening or business owner, the importance of systems, whether it's in bill paying or checklist or a delegating, one of the things I had to find as I was growing as a leader was I was sometimes a control freak and it was hard for me 
to let go. Um, Paul, let's talk a little bit about tying into letting go or delegating. Specifically, when you got out of college, you got your degree from Cornell University, which is pretty prestigious. You had this time and interaction with Oxford. And you not only just became an attorney, but you jumped into the deep end of the water. And if I remember correctly, I mean, you were right into Washington, D.C. And you had so many stories about some of the icons that you worked with there. So how did you go, okay, I used this system through school to uh, maneuver what I needed to differently than others. I stopped beating myself up uh, of what I was or what I wasn't. But all of a sudden, boom, someone thought you were good enough to get, boom, into the depth of our government <laughs> in Washington. So let's talk about transitioning your skills from academia to real life. And then I want to bring those the next transition into real estate after that. So let's talk a little bit about your journey from law to Washington. Well, you know, I consider it to be a great anecdote. I find it to be very, very funny. And that is I was sitting with my girlfriend and we had gone back to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and her aunt and uncle were helping her around the house after her mom had passed away. And the uncle, who quite, was quite a bit older than me, was, first of all, he was mowing the, mowing the lawn for her. I can contribute in a lot of ways, like yard work is not one of them. And I was sitting in the grass, you know, watching him mow the lawn with her aunt and her aunt looked at him and reflected in such a kind way. He had retired as chairman of a bank and he had been CEO of a bank and chairman of several different banks and had this phenomenal career. And she kind of marveled at him pushing the lawnmower and said, my husband, he never sought a promotion. He went to college. After he left college, he went to the bank. He was a bank teller. He did such a great job as a bank teller that they, you know, promoted him to assistant manager, you know, and just, you know, all the way up. And, you know, he definitely had the thing where they didn't recognize maybe his skill at the bank he was at. You start as a teller. Are they really going to make you CEO of that bank? You know, so then another bank, regional bank said, hey, you know, we could have you over here as, as a vice president and throughout his whole career. And she said, you know, all he did was he stuck his nose to the grindstone. And he worked very hard and he did great at what he did. And he was promoted along the way. And I was like, wow, that's, that's so amazing, you know. And I sat and I reflected on that in my own career. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that has never happened to me. Not one time. I have control freaked or, you know. <laughs> marionetted, you know, my way into every single position I've ever had. Even, you know, even getting into law school, I did it differently than other people. I, you know, I, I put the law school application and then I would start calling the admissions office. And some schools said, hey, you know what? Don't call us again. You know, we don't want, I'm like, oh, hey, it's Paul Morris. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so delighted to, you know, I, I really want to come to NYU Law School, da, 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 da. And they said to me, please don't call again. <laughs> okay. And I go, okay. And then I didn't call again. Cornell Law School, uh, where I was on the on the wait list, they're like, you know what? Call us every week because we want to say yes to people on this wait list that like really want to come. And you may get accepted somewhere else. You may want to go somewhere else or whatever. But if you tell us every week you're still interested, we will keep you on the top of the pile. So it's not going to work in every instance, but Every single thing that I did, and then I ended up going to Cornell Law School, not one of the other ones that said, hey, don't call us. Right, right. right. So every position, you know, I have politicked for or or thrown my own, you know, even even within Keller Williams, I remember somebody coming around saying, hey, you know, they're looking for a new regional director, da 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 da, da. And I waited till the meeting was over. And I called that guy. And I said, hey, I want you to recommend me. Would you be willing to do that? And then we talked all about whether I wanted to do it or didn't want to do it. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. So I right. said, I want to be direct with you and say, I may not want to do this. So if you're not comfortable recommending me, that's okay. I may not want to do it, but I know I want them to want me. 
Right, so, right. Exactly. I want to interview for the position, right? Yeah. And he said, no, 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 I'll do that. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll be respectful about it. I'll tell them in advance I may not do this. And I'm flattered that they're asking, even though I created that interview. And so really, I made my own magic in that way. Now, you know, making your own magic might be sticking your nose to the grindstone and working very hard. I often will give advice, right? And, you know, one of the, somebody was asking for different bits of advice on video. And I, one day I shot the advice of, my mom told me, whatever job you do, no matter how lowly it is, do your absolute best and it will it will benefit you in the long run. And I believe in that advice. And during while giving that advice, I also said, and I never took that advice, right? Yeah. If it was a job I hated, I never gave it my all. Right, right. Well, and I know you like, there's a quote that we had that I knew you liked. You put enough on your social media at one point. It's slide number four there, I think, Joshua. And for those that can see this, this was a, you're in front of some building, but it says the mind once stretched by a new idea never returned to its original dimensions. And although that was a Ralph, a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, I think, Paul, you believe that wholeheartedly and you do that in your life. So when you got out of uh, law school and then you went to Washington, D.C., let's just take one minute and talk about your, your or one or two minutes about Washington, D.C. And then I want to talk about getting you when you got all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast and then went from law to real estate. So let's just do a little bit of that transition. Once your mind was then stretched and you had this new idea and it never returns to original dimension, how did you end up in Washington, D.C. as a law clerk? So clerking for a federal judge, you know, is a prestigious thing to do uh, at the end of law school. And I did very much the same thing. I absolutely, it was another, it was another thing that I knew that I wasn't getting, I was sending out a bunch of applications. I wasn't getting any calls. Uh, interview with the federal judge. And I did the same thing. I started calling all the judges, Chambers. Hey, it's Paul Morris. I applied as a clerk. By the way, I'll be in Washington, D.C. this certain week. And they know that law school students, when you when you apply, if you apply to a big law firm, they pay for your they pay for your airfare. You apply for a federal judge clerkship. Nobody can pay for anything. So they're like, oh, wait a minute, Paul Morris, he's going to be he's going to be in Washington, D.C. on whatever date, you know. So if you're going to grant me an interview, it would be awesome if you could put it in these dates. I had no interview. And so they go and they will go, oh, hold on, please. And sometimes you get the hang up. Don't call the judges chambers and and we're going to throw your application in the garbage can, which was the same anyway, because I wasn't getting any calls. Right. <laughs> um, but again, it was that sort of thing. Also, you know, when I got I then worked for a big law firm. But then when I went to sort of the high level position at the Department of Justice, it was the same thing. It was a guy that was a professor at Oxford. He wasn't my professor, but he was a guy that became a very, very good friend. His credentials were absolutely through the roof. And he recommended me for this high level position at the Department of Justice. And that's how I got there. Now, my credentials were light for that particular position, but I had the EQ that some of the other kids don't have, right? So that the kids that just do well in school, right? Generally, it's not always true, but generally don't have the EQ. And can you explain for those that maybe you're listening in that don't know exactly what EQ is yet, can you explain to them what that is and how you knew you had that versus, you know, uh, some other IQ, EQ, whatever it might be. So can you explain to the audience on EQ? So EQ is emotional intelligence. It's how you get, get along in the world, I think. It's how well you do with people, you know. It's something you can learn to be a lot better at. You have to want to learn. Some people are naturally very good at it. Some people aren't, uh, but you can improve it. And listening, you know, is the biggest EQ attribute. Listening to other people, not selling, you know, but asking asking questions. You know, naturally, of course, Steve, you're very high on it. You ask great questions. You know, when people people love to talk about themselves, right? So 
sure, I love to be on a podcast. You ask me all these great questions. I get to do the answers. Da 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 da. That's great. People love to talk about themselves. So asking people about themselves rather than saying, "Hey, let me tell you about me, 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 me." Even when you're speaking, like on a podcast like this, I'm really trying to. Yes, you're asking questions about me. I'm trying to talk about things that will be useful to the audience. And that's what's going to make them, that's a version of EQ. Yeah, great. And I've, again, observed you. I've been able to work with you as a, a client and a friend for many years now and observed your ability with your IQ because you have, uh, I don't know what your IQ is, but you obviously have high intellect because you retain data very quickly. You get concepts very quickly and adapting that into the, for others in that EQ piece uh, is something, especially in the sales that we're going to talk about in the second break we come back because you got into real estate sales. But if someone is not sure about their EQ or their IQ or how to balance that in, what is it that you would say if um, someone was in the workplace right now and they're trying to figure out how to connect more with others and you gave some good examples there gotten you further in life than your iq well for sure iq it's an intelligence like it's basically like the intel processor in your brain how fast can you process in life uh it depends okay so if you're a philosopher then iq is going to be everything and eq is going to be very low and you know, and I have philosopher friends. Interesting that their IQ is off the chart, off, off, off the chart, and EQ much less, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but most workplaces, I, I was really thinking all workplaces, but it's just not true. It's like where we are, Steve, within business and any sort of people business, then EQ is going to be be more important than IQ. And again, that's that's good news because you really can you really can improve with that. Also, execution is going to be more important than good ideas. Right, right. right. There's well, so many different ideas, right? Well, it's like executing is the key. Well, one of the things you, your company, Keller Williams, does very well, and you do well personally. And I want to come back from the break because we have to jump on a break. And we're going to jump into some new places that Paul has been in the real estate world currently and then how he got there with some of the successes and challenges he's had, even during a global pandemic, running a real estate company, starting a real estate company. But one of the things that Paul's company, Keller Williams, and then Paul himself does very well beyond the IQ and the EQ. And in my last book, I talked about SQ, spiritual intelligence. Mm-hmm. But there is personality stuff as well that plays in it. And the disc. Some of you have heard about disc and the disc personality piece that can also help identify some of the strengths of your personalities. Pa- Paul actually teaches classes and workshops within his company of how to identify and connect with others, how to identify and do your own self-assessment uh, and how to be better in the world. So we're going to come back from the break with Mr. Paul Morris, talk about more how do you dig deep into building businesses, making them successful, scaling them, and also at the same time, create a happy and harmonious life. So come back for segment two on the alchemy of business. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Alchemy of Business, where we are always talking about finding ways to help people make wiser decisions, create greater profits in their life and business, and focus on having higher purpose and meaning. And uh, no better person to do that with than Mr. Paul Morris, who I've uh, known for quite a few years now and is out doing some great stuff in the world. So Paul, before the break, we were talking about how you transitioned from law school school, and into being a law clerk in, in Washington for a judge. And then how the heck did you end out in LA, because the where I met you was in LA after you'd been a very successful icon in the real estate industry for many years. And I didn't know that you had been an attorney prior to that. So let's talk uh, for this segment on the show on, on some sound bites of some quick transitioning from the, the East Coast to the West Coast, transitioning from law to real estate. And then I want to talk about how you started building a real estate company. Sure. 
So the transition to real estate is a lot more interesting because I transitioned East Coast to West Coast because my brother was out on the West Coast and the weather was phenomenal. And I wanted to see what was going on in a giant city like Los Angeles, having grown up in Pittsburgh. Transition to real estate, uh, you know, very different because I, I had uh, the only rich person I'd ever really known in my life was my dad's cousin and he did it through real estate. Um, it was something that I found to be very accessible, something I could understand fairly well. My sense of the stock market, maybe you'll have like a stock market guru on sometime and that would be great, but I just don't believe in it. You know, uh, I know that, that the blue chip stock companies when I grew up, you know, were United States Steel and General Electric and, you know, nobody knows Alcoa and nobody knows who they are. Those also based in Pittsburgh. That's how I knew them. But, you know, where is United States Steel today? United States Steel was the Apple or Google of, you know, before. Now, if, uh, if I buy a duplex in West Hollywood, which is, you know, right down the street from Beverly Hills where I'm sitting right now, um, you know, where's that going to be in 40 years? So where's Apple going to be in 40 years? They may, they may have taken over the world. I don't know. Or maybe a new technology came in and scooped them. I don't know. Where is a duplex in West Hollywood going to be 40 years from now? It's really generational wealth. So right. I believe in real estate, number one, because I, I, think I, know it, I know it to be generational wealth. And number two, I find it to be quite accessible. So uh, I have no idea what's going to happen in a stock. I don't think really anybody can. Uh, can predict that all that well. But, you know, real estate markets are easier to understand. And, and that's why I always, I really advise people to invest where they know first, you know, don't, yeah, that's, don't that's go so true. invest, you know, across well, there's the a quote. You have a quote from one of your books. We're going to talk about it in a minute, but on slide lights, uh, five there, Joshua, Paul's got himself there with uh, uh, some of his uh, books in it and his, uh, that's not, Oh, that is one of your dogs, isn't it? But you're thinking, your comment here ties in what you just said. Shift your thinking from working for money to working for wealth. So you were saying you wanted to invest and be involved in things that you could understand and that you could fear that you could get your hands around and track. And is that, that did that thinking that you just, I read on this quote you had happen before you decided to switch to real estate or once you got into real estate, you started having that thinking? So, you know, it, it definitely helped cause, it, it, was a, it was a progression for sure. And I wanted to, make sure that, you know, I had to keep my day job, right? Because, uh, because uh, you, you weren't going to make the kind of money investing in real estate. That's creating, that's really the creation of long-term wealth. People buy and flip houses all the time. I have done it occasionally. It's not my thing because as I mentioned before, my executive function, you know, my keeping everything straight, like I could really mess up a flip, you know, but I can really understand a real estate market and I always make the money going into the deal. Once I buy it, the money's already been made. So I'm not all that interested in flips because you know you have to work so hard to find the right one. You have to work so hard to fix it up and then you sell it and you make an ordinary income gain, which is taxed at my tax bracket is, is 52%. And then you've got to look for another house, start over again. Like I don't have, I don't have the, I don't have it in me. Now, I can look for houses every single day knowing they're going to a portfolio that's going to build wealth over time for me. Real estate also you can add leverage to, which is uh, conservatively borrowing money to buy real estate in a way that you cannot do in the stock market. There are also right. pretty significant tax benefits in in real estate that you don't have in the stock market. So right. that's why real estate has, is and has always been uh 
investment of choice for me. Well, it sounds like you uh, subscribe to the philosophy of Warren Buffett as well, buy and hold, specifically on the real estate space. And you do that in other areas of your life, buy and hold, meaning friendships and lifetime. I was going to mention that Paul has a, a partner of his name, Eddie, Eddie Crifter. And Eddie and Paul have been friends since they were early mm -hmm. teens and they became business partners, but they've held on to the importance of that relationship. Paul also has many other relationships that he has with people in his company, their long-term relationships. And in your real estate portfolio, Paul, you and Eddie have quite a many roofs of uh, different things that you guys have held on to assets together, right? So how many land barons, so to speak, and in different ways, right? Don't you have a lot of buy and hold real estate you've had over the years too? Yeah, roughly 600 uh, apartment units and uh, and also some commercial retail. And it, you know, it really, of course, is a sizable portfolio, but I did it. I really feel like I did it one door or five doors or whatever at, at a time. We did we did buy one, I think that it's 260 units, but primarily they were, you know, six units or 12 units or whatever. I've now uh, started doing that in Los Angeles, also keeping keeping in uh, in line with my buy where you know philosophy. So the only real estate that I own is in Pittsburgh, where I used to live, where Eddie still lives, and we have a management company there and Los Angeles or the areas right around Los Angeles, which I can really you know, see and touch. And I really know what's going on in those markets. Well, you and Eddie and your team have built one of the largest real estate companies in the nation. You were talking about brands earlier of different companies that people would know in other industries. How did you end up landing at Keller Williams? And how have you and Eddie and your team become one of the top two real estate franchises networks within that organization nationally? Can you give us just kind of a, a quick uh, like synopsis of why a brand versus Paul Morris Real Estate and why has your success been greater than others who have tried this path? So if you put me in the, you know, just being very like not humble, but also willing to be self-deprecating. If you put me into Paul Morris real estate 20 years later, which is really how long we've been at it, 20 years later, I don't believe Paul Morris real estate would be, you know, the second largest independent firm in the country. I don't think I would have been able to do that on my own. Uh, certainly not given the skill set I had 20 years ago. I've been developing a skill set. Now, going with a big brand and being a franchise, that what they were saying is, hey, just do this. Do it this way. We're going to tell you what to do. Now you do it. Now, I'm not taking anything away from myself. There were thousands of people that wanted to do that. And I did it at a very, very high level. Uh, I'm just saying that there are also thousands of people that would want to do the independent, their own brand. And I would not have done it at such a high level because the, we're going to show you how to do it and now execute. So franchising or getting into business with somebody who knows how to do it already and being willing to be the person that will execute at a high level is how I was successful at that. And then so in that finding this and you it kind of comes back to you were talking earlier in your own path before real estate, having systems, having processes, knowing where your streaks and weaknesses are. So it sounds like you were able to plug into an ecosystem that had some of these things done for you. And then your EQ, your drive, your passion and attracting other people allow that to excel. So I'm curious on I've asked you this privately before, but I'd love for the, the viewers who are in building teams or in this case, you also having a partner, a very respected and, and long term partner. What do you look for in partnerships to make sure that they last? And what are you looking for? And how do you define uh, leaderships that are at least in your ecosystem that are excelling more than others? So partnership and then leadership, are they the same traits? Are they different? So 
you know, leader, well, partnership is sort of a higher level bar for me, for sure. So getting the right people on the bus, the right people in the right position in the right context, which is a third one. A lot of people say, you know, right, right person on the right seat of the bus. And the context is also important. And the context would be like, where are you in time in their in their journey? And where are you? Where does it fall on your journey? So you can recruit anyone to be on your team. Uh, if you if you do this, are you are you able to be the vehicle to take them where they want to go? Okay, so it's very important. It's also you can see it's very focused on them. So I'm not hiring this person for them to go on their journey. I'm hiring this person because they're going to help me on my journey. But if I want to hire the best in the business or the best for that thing, I need to know where I fit in to take them where they want to go. And if I can sit down with somebody and say, hey, where do you want to go? You know, do our, does our vision align? You know, great people don't do the things you want them to do because you told them to do it. Great right. people do the things that you need them to do because it's in alignment with what they want. And so sometimes a lot of people are in a job because it, it pays a living and, you know, and then they've got a side gig or they're, you know, they're nine to five or whatever it is. And then, you know, their thing is being with family and they're like, hey, you know, when I'm done with work, I'm done. Now I'm going to spend time with family because that's what's important to me. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. However, if, if you want that, build that empire, right? You want empire builders on your team. You got to find out where they want to go and make sure right. that, that that you've got alignment. Well, and you're great about that with your team, finding out where they want to go, why they want to get there. And you're, you, you actually wrote a book about that, that you've incorporated in your team. And you have a, a book that after building this real estate company that you and your team built to over you know 10,000 transactions a year, multiple offices. But you also co-wrote a book with uh, another uh, Keller Williams executive, and owner David Osborne, and you and he had a New York Times bestselling book called Wealth Can't Wait. Can you tell us how this book came about? And can you give us a few key items that people would learn from this book if they were to read it? And you can find it on Amazon. Paul also has a website we're going to show at the end of the, the uh, show here that you can catch him uh, there as well. But Paul, tell us about how this book came about and what's in it. Well, I early on became the head of a sales force and there was always somebody better to teach a sales training. I like to do it by the way, but they're, you know, am I going to teach a listing presentation when you've got experts at that? So my contribution was that I, I found that the sales training uh, encouraged people and taught people how to turn their time into more money. So they're working, you can work smarter, you can work better, you can make more money working. What I found was that wealth did not always correlate with that. So that you can have somebody making a lot more money, but are they building a lot more wealth? Maybe they're spending more. So I found, especially with salespeople, and I, I have a sales personality as well, but salespeople are often not particularly great at building wealth. I was able to do that. So I was teaching uh, wealth building classes to our real estate agents as, as a value add. And I used that material to build that curriculum to write the book. David is a phenomenal wealth builder as well. And he was doing the same thing. His dad had passed away. He wanted to leave a legacy and was starting to write his own book. We decided to do it together. Writing a book is exactly the type of thing that I would be absolutely miserable at because, <laughs> you know, you have to set aside time. You have to, you know, when are you going to write? You know, it's very, it's very undefined and I don't do well with that. And we did great because we had little chapter heads and we had a little work assignment. I, I designed it, as I mentioned, before, like Oxford, right? If it's like, hey, meet me in a year and bring me the transcript. I'm not saying for sure I'm going to fail at that. That's going to be a struggle for me. Mm -hmm. If you go, hey, 
you know, here's the transcript you want to have a year from now. Let's break that down into 50 little writing assignments. It's exactly what I did. I followed the, I followed what worked for me at Oxford. I had like, and I loved it. You know, I was like, oh, hey, I have to write 10 pages on this one thing and da 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 da. I would write it and it would be all good. And before you know it, right, 10 pages times 50, you've got 500 pages. Now, of course, you cut that back. Uh, that's how the book came to fruition. And does that same practice apply to building wealth? So if someone's asking, well, gosh, I don't have a lot of money to get started right now, and I'm trying to figure out how to take the first step to build wealth, or maybe someone does have a lot of wealth and they're trying to figure out how to save it and protect it. But let's start for that listener that may be trying to build right now, and they're struggling right now to make the monthly net they have for their family and their own mortgage or their bills, and they're trying to figure out how to carve money for investing in creating some form of wealth for the future. So notwithstanding my advice that I never invest in the stock market, the first thing I would do is I would open uh, an IRA or a tax deferred uh, retirement plan. The reason why is you get you get very tax uh, efficient use of that. Uh, you put pre-tax dollars in those accounts. Even if you're in the red, meaning you have more debt than you have assets, I would open one of those accounts. There are very inexpensive uh, firms that do that, like a Schwab or Fidelity or whatever, and make a habit of it. So putting a certain amount of money toward your uh, your retirement. I, I literally, you know, within the last couple of months, I, I had a retirement fund when I was the government, which is a very short period of time. And I maxed out every year. It was maybe $7,000 that I put in maybe three years because I had three years in government service. I couldn't find where the documents were for it. But I'm like, I know I have a retirement plan. I know I just couldn't <laughs> find it. And then eventually, like in the mail, you know, somehow eventually it got to me. And that $21,000 was $140,000. I didn't do any stock picking because when you're in the federal government, they put in a blind trust for you. So I checked the box, like growth stocks, you know, whatever. Uh, so $140,000 is real money for sure. So I would start with that. The next place to do is is I would buy my own, buy your own house. And, you know, there's lots of podcasts where on house hacking. And way before that was a word, that's exactly what I did because uh, I was living in Washington, D.C. It was very expensive. So you can, when you're buying your primary residence, you can get extremely favorable terms, meaning you can put down very little money. Uh, lots of your mortgage payment is tax deductible. And if you can't afford that house, you can't afford those payments. You know, what I did many, many years ago was uh, was buy a house. I couldn't afford the payments. I could afford the very low down, down payment. I put roommates in to, to pay the, uh, you know, I started off, uh, you know, what the same amount that I was paying in rent was my contribution to the mortgage. There were three of us there. Uh, and eventually, you know, you live rent. I was living rent free in uh, in a very, very, you know, nice house in Washington D.C. So, so that's the next step. Uh, also, if you can find deals, you really do the work to find deals. You can use other people's money to do that, and that's how I started. You know, Eddie and I bought a duplex together on the courthouse stairs. You know, that we had the money for. Uh, our second deal was a much larger deal, and we used our brother's money, and we created what is the term for it is syndication, but all syndication is used using other people's money to invest in real estate. So my brother had some money, his brother had some money. We took their money together. We put it into a great real estate. We were uh, 25, 25, you know, quarter partners each. And, you know, and you give them a preferred rate of return, you know, you pay them first. And we all ended up at the end of the day with a lot of money from that from that first investment. I think we all netted out at least a million dollars from that one first investment. That's a long way to come from having roommates on couches and paying <clears throat> mortgages. So kudos on that. And for those listening in, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and uh, on slide number, uh, I think it's number 
uh, 12 here or so, um, uh, uh, Joshua, on sorry, the one where Paul's website, number nine. For those that are viewing this, uh, you can learn more about Paul, and we're not finished yet, but I want to make sure, uh, because this topic about syndication, about wealth, uh, not only can you find that in his book, Wealth Can't Wait, but Paul also has a website, morrisx.com. And for those that are seeing it, you'll see his <clears throat> visual here. We're going to put that in the show notes as well. I highly recommend getting his book, maybe checking out some of his uh, website uh, items. He's also uh, been involved in a show talking about real estate, real estate rock stars is the name of the show, I believe, uh, talking to salespeople who are awesome real estate agents, but also themselves investors, Paul, and in real estate. So can people still find you on that show upcoming? So real estate rock stars is really geared toward real realtors. Uh, and it's a great, it's a great show if, if you're a realtor. Bigger Pockets is a is a great investment podcast. I was interviewed on Bigger Pockets, and I give my three rules of how I follow these three rules and didn't lose money and have not lost money in a single real estate deal in 25 years. I think the best way to find that would be Google Paul Morris Bigger Pockets. Uh, I should we'll, I we'll should go ahead and put it in the show notes. So let's yeah. we'll put it in the show notes for everyone, so that way you can just click right in. Yeah. That'd be great. And also, you know, also Instagram is good, but you'll put that in this, uh, as well. Very good. Yeah, we're going to do an Instagram session in just a minute. So um, I, I think there's so much to unpack on syndication. I'd love to come back at some point in the future and just do a whole show specifically focused on syndication because there's so much there and so much meat. And I I'm tempted to go down that path right now, but we only have like seven minutes left. So I want to spend some time digging on some other topics. So you've gone from this path of law or academia, law, transitioning states, trans differing environments from east to west, uh, having partnerships, defining what leadership is, scaling your business, getting people on the right seat to the bus, opening numerous offices, maneuvering through the franchise world. So what are some things of life lessons, Paul, that you're looking now in your age that you are versus when you were a 20-year-old man? What are some key lessons that you know just for your own psyche that are kind of some simple rules of life that you have about mindset or living life or you know uh, anything? Like that? Do you have any quick words of wisdom before we jump into another segment I want to do on Instagram? But I want to just get your current perspective on life philosophy. So- you know, I always talk about the magic zone. The magic zone to me is really where your passion meets your ability. And then that leads to a highly productive uh, effort. So if you give me something to do that I don't like doing, you know, you can force yourself to do it. But over time, your productivity is going to wane. Does it give you energy? Does it take energy away? That's the magic zone. So uh, another thing, you know, is that, uh, you know, and I would have said BS on this, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but, you know, I really have found that your net worth will never exceed your self-worth. And so really working on yourself, you want to build wealth, work on yourself. Uh, you know, I, I know people that, that uh, you know, are just naturals at it. And then other people sort of they hit a they hit a ceiling and then you know they self-sabotage or things go sideways or they have the great idea, they execute, it just never happened. So that net worth never exceeds your self-worth. You you can work on that as well. Uh the people you surround yourself with, I mean, they used to have, I forget it was like a cell phone commercial or whatever, but it's like, you know, who's your five inner circle or whatever. But but that's a real thing. So who you surround yourself with makes a makes a big difference. And I'm not saying that, you know, oh well, hey, I have a school teacher friend. And he hasn't built a lot of wealth because uh, he's a school teacher. Kick him off my team. Or, or, or I will say, like, your, your, your net worth is generally the average of 
your five closest friends, right? So I'm like, oh, well, I need a few more billionaire friends, right, to up that game. So there's, a, there's another piece to it that's more subtle than that. So I'm not kicking my school teacher friend out of the inner circle because he's such an amazing person and contributes. But who I will kick out of the inner, inner circle is is the uh, energy suck. You know, the the person that's just the energy vampire. You know, taking taking your energy away. And I had you talked about a lasting relationship I had with Eddie. You know, it's one of our other childhood friends. You know, would call me and say, Hey, Paul, how are you? He wouldn't even wait for the answer, and I'd be like, Wah! You know, the, like all the complaining. I'm like. And I used to gravitate towards him. And, you know, I had this in mind. I'm like, okay, well, I don't have to cut him out entirely, but I realized that that he's not contributing. You know, he's not, he's, you know, and, and uh, negative self-talk, replacing that with the positive self-talk, you know, affirmations, these things that, you know, again, which seemed quite hokey to me a long time ago, you know, really, really do make a difference. I've been yeah. listening to... Uh, you know, an affirmation thing, be meditation before I go to bed. And I'm like, I listen, it's 22 minutes. I listen to two minutes. I'm out cold. You know, what a good way to have your mind go down. It yeah. would positive stuff in it. Yeah. 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 And you know, the opposite of that, I, I, you know, I'm always on a self-improvement, uh, always ran self-improvement. I had the same therapist for 10 years and about seven years ago, I said to her, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm having these horrible nightmares. You know, I, I'm not, I never have nightmares like these horrible. And she's just like, she goes, well, what are you doing right before you go to bed? And all, that's all she did was ask the question. I'm like, oh, like I'm going to show my therapist how dumb I am. Like, can we erase that? Because my answer, <laughs> my answer to that question was I was watching Game of Thrones before I went to bed. And I'm like, okay, I don't have to answer that. I already know. No, but I did. I got that in your software. You were going down. Your brain was still yeah. processing that. Like, you had I'm a sword in your hand. You were ready to rock and roll, right? Yeah. I'm watching Game of Thrones. And she's like, well, are you crazy? You know, like, do you get it? Oh, so when your therapist asks you if you're crazy, that's a bad thing. So the other thing is, you know, taking responsibility. Responsibility. It's just taking responsibility for everything. Everything in your life really is, uh, it's a product of your, where you are, uh, where you are and mindset, where you are mentally, whatever. And, and that goes for people that have lots of wealth and people that don't have lots of wealth. If you don't want wealth, that's okay too, you know, but really taking responsibility. So like what bad thing happened to you? And then we all have those people in our lives. And some of them I love dearly, you know, it's like, they're just going to tell you all the bad things that happen. And it just, right. just have a, an awareness of that. Listen for it. I remember the first time that somebody taught me the difference between, be, between light and heavy. You know, if I say, Steve, you have to do this. You just go light or heavy. You go, hmm, that's good advice, but still a little heavy. I go, hey, Steve, have you ever considered doing X, Y, and Z? Might that help you? Is that something you would consider? It's way lighter, right? So just like light, light versus heavy. Watch for light versus heavy. Watch for negative versus positive in what you do as well as what other people do. Because at the end of the day, you can only control yourself, right? I love um, that. Light versus heavy. And I love that, again, a reminder for all of us about responsible for all of our actions. I had one of my mentors and friends, long-term uh, mentor, Brian Tracy on a few weeks back. And Brian was also talking about that. One of the lessons in life about learning that we are responsible for all actions, all thoughts and all deeds in our life. So thanks for that reminder. We're going to roll in towards the end of the show here. We always wrap up with a fun little segment on uh, something that my show uh, engineer is going to introduce for us on Instagram, a little fun little spot. And then we're going to wrap up conversation at the end of the call with a little bit more seriousness too on a topic about spirituality and spiritual intelligence since we were talking about EQ and IQ and various things. Joshua, tell us what's going on here on this next segment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the alchemy of business. Interestingly, interesting Instagram. And the rules are simple. You take a quick dive on your photos, your Instagram feed. 
We pull them up, some interesting ones without context, and you share and tell us more about what's happening in the photo. Sound good? Sounds good. I'm ready. Okay, Paul. Yeah, now I'm now I'm worried about what I have on my Instagram, but carry okay, on. Okay, so for those of you that can't see the photo, I'm going to describe it to you. Paul is sitting on a brick windowsill with some very uh, wise but ancient looking people. It looks like he's having an engaging conversation. Where are you here, Paul, and what's this about? So in Havana, Cuba, and it, it's an elderly woman smoking a cigar. I just, I came across her and I couldn't believe how cool she looked. And I wonder what is going to happen what words of wisdom is she going to have? So I just sat down. I go, hey, you know, seems like you're enjoying that cigar. What's going, you know, just a, just, a, just a little chat and finding out perspective on life from someone uh, decades older than me. Wow, very cool. Next slide we've got for you is uh, it, it, was, it was enough to be on your f uh, slide. It doesn't have people in it, but it has food. I know you are a foodie. You and you and Eddie love good restaurants and you love being a food connoisseur. So I think this has something to do with food. Can you tell everybody what this is about? Well, you know, this was an example of uh, what I felt was like amazing marketing. And so the restaurant group that does this particular takeout they do such a phenomenal job. The, the food is excellent for sure, but the packaging is just phenomenal. And in a real estate franchise, the way that you market things really makes a difference. Uh, it really, really does. And so many real estate coaches or whatever will actually tell you the opposite. You know, it's the number of contacts you make and that sort of thing. And I liken this to, you know, one thing that Apple really has down is that any product that you buy from Apple, you feel like Christmas morning when you're opening it. It's like, yeah, oh, true. you peel the plastic off and then the, there's the box and there's the thing in the box. And it's like, it's like you're giving yourself a gift of jewelry when you buy, you know, uh, AirPod Pro or whatever. Right. And this yeah. was very similar. Uh, it was very similar. And so I was just sort of showcasing the uh, the marketing aspect. Well, yeah, the packaging, you advise your agents and your agents advise their sellers on staging their homes, making it look yes. as appealing as possible and making that happen. So that flows right in your business all the time. And for anyone that's got products or services, packaging and marketing and the experience that a consumer has is key. Okay, we have another slide here, another photo. We've got <laughs> you uh, looking intently. We're going to talk in a minute about your yoga real quick before we wrap up. But it, it looks like a partial yoga move, but with a table and a laptop and in public. What's going on here? <laughs> so this is why I love you get like, yeah, ask me a question. I, I will tell you the truth. And the truth is, is I, I staged that photo and I staged it because a really amazing, my girlfriend and this really phenomenal yogi guru friend of ours sent us a photo of this like crazy pose that he was in. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, I have my assistant, I'm like, let me, you know, let me do a half Lotus uh, while I'm working. So it, it was staged and my yogi guy it, for that particular picture is like, you're hunched over a little bit. <laughs> He's I not giving you posture up trader, but uh, I was trying to do the humble brag of how flexible I am. Yeah. And you are. Paul's a, a yogi for sure. I, I, he'll be in meetings sometimes. He'll be in a, it will be in a group of meetings. He goes, oh, I got to be at a yoga class by six. Uh, I got to leave here in 10 minutes. And he's like disciplined about getting to his yoga practice. So I want to come back on that as we wrap up the seven, because I think that is part of your spiritual practice, possibly. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, I want to come back to that. We only have a few minutes left on the show. Joshua, do you have any more slides? I'm speaking of girlfriend here. So you've got a beautiful woman uh, here next to you, both looking happy and harmonious. Uh, what's in this photo here going on? So so yes, she's 
absolutely gorgeous and highly photogenic. I have to go through at least a thousand where I look halfway decent. She always looks great. So I was happy to come across this one. But one one interesting thing about it too is that this was the home that we just moved into that I that I just bought. And uh, and this was before we closed escrow, we had our, our holiday party there. So we we're really having fun at would become my new house. Ah, very cool. Well, congrats to you both on that. So well, that's awesome. We're done with that segment. We're going to roll into wrapping up here, Paul. Uh, thanks for all of the wisdom on, uh, we could go on for hours with the, these topics you had. And so I, we didn't get to everything I wanted, but we got to a lot. So thanks for the advice about all of the the mindset about taking responsibility, about uh, learning how to use your EQ, your IQ, making sure that leadership is about helping others get what they want, understanding that your uh, your net worth is also equally as important, uh, your, your self-worth is equally or even more important than your net worth, and you have to work on yourself personally. And you do that through, like you said, therapy, mindset, meditations, yoga. Can you give us a description of how you define spirituality in your life or how you define spirituality in general? And do you incorporate that into your life and business in what you call an apparent way? So uh, before I answer that question, I would be remiss in saying that, you know, how amazing it has been, Steve, to work with you. And you've played a tremendous part in our organization as a consultant and as a friend and really, you know, always not afraid to point out the things that need to be pointed out. And one of the things that I said before was judging light versus heavy. And uh, Steve is very effective while always being light. So, you know, you never feel bad when Steve gives you advice. That's a real talent and it makes that advice uh, more palatable and therefore more effective for people. You know, I think a great mindset thing is when you're giving advice to say, what are they willing to hear? And if they're not willing to hear what you're willing to give, it's not really, it seems more like judgment than advice. So you've got to meet people where they are. That's my advice on it, but it's something that Steve does so well. So oh, thank you. Really, yeah, I really appreciate all that you've contributed uh, uh, for sure. So, you know, spirituality uh, is for me being, you know, being aligned and being integrated and in integrity. And what that means to me is, is one of the things that I like to do is I like to contribute, right? I want to contribute to somebody. I want to contribute to the industry. I want to help people. And I just had these ideas to do that. And yet, I remember leaving this one meeting where one of my agents had called to, you know, I'm really at a transitional place in my life and I'd love to meet with you and get some career advice where I was all fired up to go into that meeting. And I left the meeting thinking like, boy, that was terrible, that meeting. You know, I don't want to do more of those meetings. And I walked out and I go, you know, I have this part of my life that part of my reason to be is helping people. And you know what? Right now, I don't feel like helping people. I don't enjoy helping people. And having the ability to sit with those feelings of, you know, that's okay. What is that really about? You know, and then I get back to my Beverly Hills office and my team leader, Josh Spitzen, then I'm helping him with something. And when I'm done helping him with something, I'm like, wow, that was the greatest thing ever. I'm like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Maybe I do like to help people. What is it? And I kind of redefined it in a way that works for me. And that was, I like to help the willing. And it doesn't mean that somebody has to take my advice. They, by the way, you can absolutely not take my advice. I'm fine with that. But somebody that was willing to get into action. So they go, oh, well, let me tell you all the terrible things that happened to me. Oh, well, have you considered this? Yeah, no, that's no good. I'm not, not going to work. Well, have you considered that? No, that's going to, well, well, what would work for you? Oh, you know, I don't know. It's like, okay, well, that's okay. It doesn't make that a bad person. It might just, they're not at a point in time where they right. are, you know, open to it. 
I'll give you another sort of little takeaway is when you're looking for a mentor, you know, always come from contribution. When I'm trying to get a meeting with somebody that, you know, may not have the time, I, I will say, hey, Steve, how do I earn the right to have a 20 minute coffee with you? And usually just asking it that way, coming from contribution, usually they just go, okay, no problem. Now, when I arrive at that 20 minute coffee, I've done research on Steve. I know what Steve likes. I know what's important to him in his life. And I have an organized list of questions. Hey, Steve, I know you said 20 minutes. So I'm going to set my timer at 20 minutes because no matter how great this meeting goes, I want to jump up and run out the door because I know how busy you are. So I'm going to want to leave you in 20 minutes. So I brought you this, you know, single origin coffee from Guatemala because I looked on your Instagram. It seems like you love coffee. So here you go. So, you know, what have you enjoyed in your life? What have you enjoyed in your career? And I'm going to ask these questions that are really going to help me, but they're really a way to allow Steve to showcase himself. So that's, you know, maybe I went off on a bunny trail, but... Uh, well, I, t I clearly got from being of service, contributing, and also doing it when you don't necessarily want to do it and assessing that. My wife has a quote <laughs> that she says all the time about service because she's uh, very heavily in the AA program and, and a recovery for other women. But she uh, talks a lot about service. And she says, service isn't service unless it's inconvenient. And I always process that word. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're saying there is even when you don't want to, when we're being of service to others and giving of ourselves beyond ourselves, and I've seen you do that numerous times where you have to go into a meeting or you have to step into something or you have to be in a, a situation where someone really needs your wisdom, guidance, energy, or spirit. And it's being of service. So I love that you're bringing that up about mindset and self-worth and self-confidence. And and I, and I and for me, your when I watch you go do your yoga practice and go, look, I know this meeting is really important. I've got X amount of minutes left on this and we've had this done today. But your practice of yoga, I assume, is some kind of inner conditioning for your own psyche, mind or self that somehow gives you that condition you need to be able to out and go out and do that all over again, meaning be of service when you don't want to always be of service. Is that accurate? So uh, it'll take a whole nother episode for sure. <laughs> we'll I get the, read, the, the snippet of it. <laughs> I want to get your wife on here because I try to, I would go exactly the opposite and say that you should help people when it giving and receiving are simultaneous, right? And one of the things that I really, you know, I'm the youngest of five, but I then became the patriarch when my dad passed away. I have a sister that whose kids need help all the time. And, you know, I just found myself getting beaten down with, you know, these with requests and help and whatever. And I freed myself from all of that by allowing myself to have a quality no, to say no with quality, like, sorry, I can't talk now, but I could talk to you a little bit later. Or how about at 5.30 today or whatever that is. And really integrating in your being, uh, doing the things, the things of service that really speak to you. And I find, by the way, that I'm even encouraged to help more, right? So, so I'm going to say this. What if I told you my goal is to be of help, of service to people only when it's convenient to me? Mm. Your wife would be like, wow, he's a bad person, you know, like <laughs> not a good guy. No shooting on Paul, that's for sure. And I would say this, let's measure the time, okay? And it's not talking about her versus me, but just me versus me. And if you say to me, Paul, how much time do you give to other people, that, you know, that's not directly helping you? You know, you would look at that time and go like, wow, it's really an amazing, you're really a giving person. And as soon as I let go of doing anything that was really, truly inconvenient for me or something I really didn't want to do, and that I could say no to that stuff, 
I end up giving more mm. uh, so that I'm not giving out of obligation, right? I'm giving out of desire to give. And by the way, it's help, just taking that alone, it's helped me not say no. I can say yes to so many more things. Here's what, here's what I do. I go like this. Steve, you asked me, hey, will you help me? Will you be on my podcast? Well, I want to be on the podcast. That's, sorry, that's a bad example, right? You know, but if you ask me for something and I'm not sure I want to do it, I kind of think I don't want to do it. So I'm pretty sure I don't want to do it. My answer would be no, right? But now what if I'm pretty sure I don't want to do it? And I frame a question in my mind. I go, well, how can I make this work for me? Right. I can say yes to so many more things. Right. You know, and it sounds very, I'm sorry, I know it sounds very selfish. You asked me about spirituality and being spiritual to me is being in integrity. And so I have in my heart a desire to give and I have in my heart a desire to help. And one of the things that has helped me make that flourish is by taking away some of the times that I'm helping when I don't want to help. Now is not a good time. No, that's very powerful. I love that creating the desire to give and to want to give more. I mean, you're freeing up that energy uh, to make that happen. So I applaud that. That's why I'm always intrigued by talking to people about their definition of spirituality and how they contribute and show up in the world, because it is different. I'm not here to, d- to proclaim religion or spirituality for anyone. I'm here to learn more about what makes their definition of that work. And what does that propel in the inviting good in the world, as my last uh, book talked about? And what you're talking about, you do that. So we're coming out of a time here. And I want to thank you for creating the space in your life, Paul, for the desire and the ability and your knowledge and your IQ, your EQ and your empathy and your desire to help others grow. And anybody that's listening in on the show, understanding that if you're leading others or if you're contributing to others, some of the things Paul talked about today, either acquired skills or inbred skills, but ones that can be cultivated. And I think one of the lessons, again, talking about business and life with Paul today is the importance of increasing your skills and fine tuning them so that they do get enhanced, whether you're becoming a yogi, whether you're investing in wealth, whether you're building a team, whether you're building a brand, all of those things take skill and surrounding yourself with other people that allow you to lift yourself up and then allow you to lift them up uh, beyond that. So thank you, Paul, for your contribution today on the Alchemy of Business. We really appreciate being here. We're going to have all of Paul's uh, contact info uh, in the show notes so you can reach him on Instagram, his website, etc. Paul, any closing thoughts before we wrap up? And again, we're just thrilled to have you on the show. Again, just thank you. I really appreciate it. And I know that what you're putting out in the world with this show is going to uh, is going to help so many people. And I know that you're not doing it out of just inconvenience, but this is where your heart is taking you. So I want to talk to your, I want to, I want, I want that conversation with your wife. <laughs> That'll be a good one. I can't wait to have that with you both. Yeah, that's awesome. That. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening in on the Alchemy of Business. And we will talk with you and see you next time. Thank you for listening in. And if you will enjoy the show and go in and subscribe and do a review, we always appreciate it. It helps us keep up uh, having other listeners uh, get value from these great guests we're having on the show. Wishing everyone the very best and creating your own dreams and your own prosperity in life. Thanks, everyone. Okay, thank you. And that concludes this episode of The Alchemy of Business with your host, Steve Rogers. If you found value in today's broadcast, please consider liking, subscribing, sharing with friends, and leaving a review. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next Thursday for another episode. Be blessed and see you soon.